Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are going to continue our series in the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles. Let's open up to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, look around on the floor around you. There should be one somewhere in your area. Go ahead and grab one of those. And uh, in our Bibles, we're going to page 920, Acts chapter 11. If you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to take that one with you. We would love to give it to you as our gift to uh, equip you to continue reading and studying over the course of the week. All right, so we're going to Acts chapter 11. We're continuing where we left off last week, verse 19. We're going to read verses 19 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 30. All right, starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This report, the report of this, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. Um, you, ever, you ever notice there are certain people you um, just enjoy being around, and, in, and even specifically in the Christian context, people that just um, draw out your best. They're warm, they're friendly, they're encouraging. It doesn't mean that they never say hard things or, or things like that, but there's just something about them that's comforting. There's something about them that is encouraging. Uh, I was thinking about this yesterday. Yesterday, I was at the memorial service for my friend Donnie. Uh, I mentioned Donnie two weeks ago in my sermon. Um, two and a half weeks ago, Donnie was suddenly killed in a, in a car accident on Highway 44. And, um, and yesterday was his memorial. And uh, it was a hard day as, as um, Donnie's kids, two teenagers, got up and, and shared memories and thoughts and his widow and, and close family friends and, and um, uh, it, was a, it was a day of, of shared memories, of celebrating his life, and also sharing our sorrow, right? And it stirred up a lot. It was difficult. In fact, yesterday morning when I woke up, um, I just had this, like, tension. Um, I just, I didn't want to go. I was going to put it out. I didn't want to go. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't want to celebrate my friend. It was that I didn't want to be around people. Um, I knew that I was going to be vulnerable. I knew I was going to be... Uh, kind of an emotional mess. And I was walking into a room with a lot of people. Donnie, Donnie had, as a teacher, touched a lot of lives, and we had shared a lot of history. And some of those folks I haven't seen in eight years, 10 years, man, some of them 15 years. Uh, so I knew it was going to be a lot of conversations, and I knew it was going to be um, uh, just going to have to be present. Um, and the reality is I just didn't want to talk. I didn't, I didn't want to have to try to remember people's names. I, I didn't want to have to listen. And, um, and so I guess I was being um, a little selfish. Um, I was definitely very tired. And, but we went, and um, as Lauren and I were looking for a seat, we got there kind of right as it was beginning, and, and the place was packed, and there were seats only open seats were way up at the front. You know what that's like? You got to walk all the way down the aisle past everybody. And um, I'm like, you know, and, and we get up there and, and I'm just got my head down and we're like, okay, here's some open seats. So we kind of shove our way in there. And, and, and I look up and uh, it was really a gift of grace because the people we sat next to 
was this family we've just known for years. Um, they, they, I taught their kids. I taught their daughters when I was in education. And their daughters used to babysit my kids when they were little. This family has been nothing but a blessing to us over the years. I mean, this family has um, the track record of, of our relationship really has been just them seeking to bless us. And, and I can't tell you what it did to my heart. When I looked up and I saw that's who we were sitting next to, like there was this immediate impact on my heart where the tension just released. You know what I'm saying? Like there was just this, this kind of just this, okay, <laughs> this is going to be good. It was a gift. I mean, it was really a gift of grace that, that the Lord allowed us to, to come in late and, and, and find that seed. And, and it allowed me just to relax, right? It gave me a space to mourn around people that I felt very comfortable with and, and I knew um, were mourning with me. And, and um, it, was, uh, it was a real gift of grace. So here's the thing, you guys, from the earliest days, the central message of the church has been a message of grace, right? That's, that's the message of the gospel, that God extends grace to us, which is so much more than just pardon, right? We know Jesus died for our sins and he rose again so we could be forgiven, right? When we believe in Jesus, all of our guilt is removed. All of our shame is removed, right? Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived and then died the death we deserve to die um, in our place as our substitute. And when he rose again, he, he proved that the payment was complete, that God was satisfied in regard to our rebellion and our cosmic treason, that Jesus paid the price and we were made clean, right? But, but when we're talking about grace, man, we're talking about so much more than a legal transaction, right? We're not, we're not just talking about a pardon where, where our guilt is removed. We're talking about an adoption, right? Actually being brought into the family of God. We're, we're talking about God not just removing our shame, but giving us our dignity. God removing our, our guilt and then giving us a record that's not our own. That's grace. It's this invitation into God clothing us in His love and God clothing us in His dignity. And then as we believe that, we create a community of grace. Right? The church is seldom at its best because it's made up of very broken, sinful people. But at its best, it's broken, sinful people covered in the grace of God sharing that grace with each other. It's a community of grace, a community in which grace comes in and, um, and shapes us deeply and then frees us, right? Because what ends up happening is when you taste deeply of the grace of God, it, it creates this contentment in your heart right? So you're not, you're not, it just frees you from, from the, the ambitions and the lusts that are yours, um, that where you're trying to prove yourself or establish yourself, or you're always ranking yourself, you're always competing. Grace comes in and just calms all that garbage down and allows you to just sit in the love of God, be defined by the love of God, instead of by, by how you compare to somebody else or how you're better than somebody else, how you're wittier than somebody, right? It just brings contentment. And then out of that contentment, grows a gratitude, right? Instead of, instead of needing more, needing more, needing more, you actually find yourself experiencing a thankfulness for who God is and what He's done. And out of that gratitude grows a generosity, a generosity of spirit, a generosity of relationship, a generosity of, of life, right? Where, where we've received grace so fully, we flow in grace in the lives of others. And as we do, we experience more grace. (laughs) That's the beauty of the cycle, right? As we move out in generosity, as we move out in service, we experience more of the grace of God as we share that grace with others, which just deepens the cycle in our lives. At best, the Christian community is that cycle. It is an experience of grace. I think there's nothing more attractive, nothing more beautiful than somebody who is the presence of grace. I hope you have those people in your life, people that really are the embodiment of God's love to you. Like they call out your best. And when they're with you, they, they call out your identity in Christ, your security in Christ, your joy in Christ, right? They are simply the presence of the love of God to you. Well, this morning we get to look at one of the giants in the early church of grace. Now, there were a lot of giants in the early church, um, Peter and, and James and, 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 and John and, and the, uh, Saul who becomes Paul, right? But one of the giants that I have always really been drawn to, one of the guys that I just love is this guy Barnabas. 
And he's a guy that honestly doesn't make most people's lists. He's really easy to miss. When you're talking about all the great things that happened and all the big names, uh, Barnabas is a guy that often gets left out um, kind of in the background. And I think that's honestly partly because he just functioned in the background. He loved to be an encourager. He loved to be the presence of the grace of God. He loved to invest himself in others because he was gifted uh, to do so. Um, And so we're going to take a look this morning at how the transformative power of grace unleashed generosity, gratitude and generosity in Barnabas's heart, and how that transforms an entire community. Okay, so we're going to be looking at our text this morning. It's It's an interesting text. Last week, we looked at um, the vision from Peter. If you remember last week, Peter was on a rooftop praying, and he had a vision of this blanket coming down, right? And it was full of all of these animals, four-footed animals and reptiles and birds. And they were all animals that were unclean to the Jewish um, dietary law, right? They, they were not kosher, right? And God basically said, dude, get up right? And eat some bacon. Get up and enjoy some barbecue, some pulled pork, right? Stuff he had never eaten before in his life is suddenly available to him, the beauty of the pig, right? And, 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 and so the message was not just, okay, your dietary restrictions are lifted. You get to eat good food. The, the message was, um, don't call anything common or unclean when God says it's okay, specifically about people. Because the application isn't just to his dietary restrictions, it's to his lifestyle, right? He's, because the immediate application is go hang out with unbelievers, go hang out with Gentiles, go hang out with non-Jewish people, people that you would normally consider common or unclean. Never call someone common or unclean. That's the message, right? You are to see the image of God in everybody. Even if it's ruined, even if it's, even if it's, even if it's defaced, even if it's, you still need to honor the fact that every individual is created in the image of God right? And you honor God by respecting the image in them. You don't see anybody as common or worthless, and you don't see anybody as unclean, so repugnant and repulsive to you that you can feel superior to them. Grace creates a level playing field. That was the message of last week. Um, And this week, what we see is really the Spirit shoving the church into the experience of what Peter um, began in that vision and experience. What we're seeing is, is a shift in the center of the church. All right, so up to this point, the gospel has grown explosively, but not globally. It's grown explosively in Jerusalem and in the surrounding uh, Jewish communities. You guys like my map? You like that? It's like circa 1970. I felt guilty even putting that up there. We should have something really fancy, right? Like a Google image where it starts out in the space and it zooms in so you can see that we're actually looking at the, you know what I'm saying? Like, anyway, I'm... I'm going to need some help. Um, I'm just throwing it out there. But uh, that's my map, and there's Jerusalem. And up to this point, um, Christianity has been really localized around Jerusalem, right, and, and the surrounding Jewish communities. Jesus was a Jew. Um, the faith community had Jewish roots. Um, even the Gentiles who had become believers up to this point were, were proselytes or, or at least God-fearers. And, uh, and that shaped that culture. The commonality of their Jewish heritage shaped the culture. And so the outside world, when they saw the church, they saw it as, sect, as a sect of Judaism, right? They were just weird Jews who believed in Jesus. They were still this part of, of Judaism. So Peter's vision last week set the theological stage for a shift because what, what, what the vision said was, was basically the anchor's been pulled up, man. This message is no longer rooted in a specific ethnic group or a specific place. It is now going to shift, right? It's going to be unmoored from, its, um, from the rock of Judaism. And, and that has profound implications, right? Instead of being rooted in a place or a people, the church now is going to be rooted in a message. And wherever that message goes and is received... Um, you're going to see the center of the church shifting as it moves, right? So as the Spirit moves and the message is preached, the center of the church moves with it. This morning, our passage is the first critical transition of the movement of the center of the church from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, Antioch um, was a predominantly Gentile city. It was far north of Jerusalem, 
uh, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, right? It was, it was only uh, third to Rome itself and to Alexandria. Uh, it had a population of over a half million people. It was a thriving metropolis with tons of culture, tons of pagan temples. Um, it was a meeting place of cultures and activity and commerce. And um, in verses 19 and 20, it tells us that, that after Stephen was stoned and the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jews were scattered, some of them went back to their homes in this area, right? Cyprus and Cyrene uh, and Antioch. And, and they shared the, Jew, the, the gospel with Jews first. That's who they were comfortable with. As they traveled, they would go from synagogue to synagogue and they would talk about Jesus in the synagogues with the Jews. But interesting, what ends up happening is when some people get to Antioch, they start sharing the gospel not just with Jews, but with Greeks, people who have absolutely no Jewish heritage, people who have no Jewish foundation or background. And something amazing happens. There's like this incredible response. All of these Greek-speaking, non-Jewish people, like there's all of a sudden this influx of people who are hearing the gospel and believing it. And the response is so strong that the leaders in Jerusalem heard about it. And they decided to send Barnabas as representative to check it out, to make sure that, that, that everything's cool. And they've already done this a couple times uh, as the gospel has moved out. Uh, this is the farthest they've sent somebody. And, uh, and so they send Barnabas. So a little background on Barnabas. Barnabas was introduced to us in Acts chapter 4 um, in the early stage of the church. He was a Jew... Um, uh, but he was um, raised uh, in Cyprus, which is an island right off the coast of Antioch. So he's from this area. He came to Jerusalem for, for the feast at Pentecost. And, uh, and while he was there, he heard the gospel, became a believer. And it so changed his life. His name was Joseph, that the disciples gave him a new name, right? They just renamed him Barnabas, which is a name that means son of encouragement. So that tells us a lot about his character. He was so undone by grace, that he became the presence of grace in people's lives. And it was so noticeable that they renamed him, right? They're like, we're going to give you a new name, right? Barnabas, uh, son of encouragement. And so now they send him, probably because he's familiar with the area, because he, he grew up in Cyprus and Antioch is not foreign to him, to go check out this new work. And, um, and when Barnabas gets there, Man, he's stoked. I mean, he's like, this is incredible. God's doing amazing things here. In fact, he's, he's so excited that he travels north uh, about a day's journey up to Tarsus to get a guy named Saul. Now, Saul was already introduced to us a couple chapters ago. He was a persecutor of the church who was um, converted on the road to Tarsus. And um, he made a visit to Jerusalem. People were afraid of him uh, because he was a persecutor. And he basically just went off to <laughs> Tarsus. And, um, and that's where we left him. So Barnabas goes up there, finds him, brings him back down to Antioch. They served together in Antioch for about a year, the text tells us. Um, and during this time, it tells us, interestingly enough, that the, that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Now, that's such a common term to us today. We own it for ourselves. We call ourselves Christians. Um, if you're a follower of Christ, it, we're culturally called Christians. People outside call us that. This was unusual, and I think it's interesting because it's the first time that the followers of Jesus had an identity outside of Judaism. So the surrounding culture, in other words, saw this new community of grace, and they kept hearing them talk about this Jesus Christ, and to them, the word Christ didn't have a whole lot of meaning. Um, it wasn't his last name, right? We know that. The word Christ means Messiah. It was a title, um, but it was a messianic title. It was a Jewish title. And for somebody not from Judaism, it didn't, didn't mean anything. And so they just heard him talking about this Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, so much that they started calling them Christians, right? Christ followers, right? Those who are of Christ. That's what the name means. So they started calling them Christians. The believers themselves didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves the saints. They called themselves the family. They called themselves brothers and sisters, the community, the way. Um, but the outside world started calling them Christians as a, an identifier. And then later, of course, it becomes really the universal um, name, right? It shows that they were developing a unique identity away from Judaism, something that was distinct and unique from their heritage and their history. 
And, um, and then the story concludes with some prophets coming down or up. Uh, they always say down. Anytime you leave Jerusalem, they say you're going down because Jerusalem's on a hill. Uh, but they went up north to Antioch, and, and, and um, the prophets prophesied that there was a, a famine coming. And so in response to that, the church takes up an offering. They save, and then Barnabas and Saul are commissioned to carry that offering to the, uh, to the church in Jerusalem. And, um, and we learn by putting some other pieces together. Paul wrote the, the letter to Galatians, and he said there was 14 years between his first visit to Jerusalem and his second. So that allows us to put a little bit of the timeline together. That means that he was in Tarsus for eight or nine years. So for eight or nine years, Saul was up in Tarsus doing his thing, basically relearning the scripture, sharing the gospel, living on his own, and the church was content to leave him there. <laughs> they didn't really want him all lot closer. Um, and, uh, and it was after that eight or nine years that Barnabas went up there, found him, and recruited him. All right, so this section, there's the summary. This section is, is historically important. The things that I've described to you um, are important. Um, but I think it's what Barnabas is doing in the middle of all this that's so encouraging to me. And that's where I want to focus is, is really what's going on with Barnabas because I think he embodies the encouragement of the gospel in a way that's really compelling. Take a look at verse 23, verses 22 and 23, because it describes Barnabas's initial response. In verse 22, it says, The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. All right, it's really easy to read this and totally miss um, just how remarkable and important this is. Um, see, this says a lot when you think about the cataclysmic changes that were taking place in the church and in society at this time, for him to show up, see the work of God, and be glad. Because I think most of us, many of us, would have shown up, and honestly, we would have been afraid. We would have been afraid. Um, fear is often the impulse of our hearts when, when we see something happening that puts us off balance, when, when what makes us comfortable is threatened. When what just feels known and safe to us no longer feels known and safe, right? When, when you just assume this is the way life is, and then you find out that, that forces are at work, changes are in place that are threatening the status quo, fear is often our first response. And fear produces a fight or flight response, right? So what do we do? We either get defensive in our fear, we decide to build a wall and shore things up and protect, or we go on the offensive and attack, right? It's fight or flight. So fear tends to make us pull back and self-protect or move forward and, uh, and engage in an attack, right? When, when what, we, what makes us feel important, when what makes us feel loved, when what makes us feel secure is threatened, fear is often the result. Here's the thing for, for Barnabas. Barnabas moved into a situation that really was threatening to his history and was threatening to the identity of the church. And instead of moving into fear, um, he moved into a posture of gladness, of thankfulness, and of generosity. See, this whole thing was going to cost him. As a Jewish man with a Jewish heritage, it was going to cost him, but he wasn't thinking about the cost. He was thinking about the joy. And I think we can learn from his example. So I want to look at how this plays out, because I think first we see that his faith freed him from the fear of change in radical and beautiful ways. So Barnabas showed up in Antioch and saw what no one had seen yet. He saw a surge of, of Gentile pagan people becoming believers in Jesus with no Jewish history. They didn't know the Jewish law. They didn't know the Jewish customs. They didn't know the Jewish rules. They, had, they, they weren't familiar with the Ten Commandments. They didn't know about the dietary restrictions. They weren't circumcised. And all of these people are becoming believers in Jesus. And in fact, they're becoming believers so rapidly that they're actually becoming the dominant force in the church. Like they're starting to outnumber the Jews, right? Which means the Jewish character of the church 
is going to be threatened. And this could have, and we know that it actually did, incite fear. In fact, there was a Judaizing segment of, of early Christians that become a real problem later in the book of Acts, and, and they are acting in fear, trying to protect their heritage and attack what they see as, as, as things that are threatening um, their identity, right? Culture shifts are scary, you guys. All right, let me give you an example. When, when I first um, started attending The Journey, The Journey is the church in St. Louis that's our parent church. Um, I was on staff there for two years as the family pastor, and then they sent uh, me to this area, and I started Trailhead uh, about five years ago, right? Um, but when I first started going, they were only at one location at a church called Hanley Road Baptist Church. They were sharing the building. It was in Clayton, and there were three churches that met in that space. So the building was owned by Hanley Road Baptist Church, okay? This was mainly older, white, upper middle class, very conservative, very reserved people, right? So their worship was really calm, right? You got a piano accompaniment. That's about it, right? Everybody, everybody sits. Every, their, their key verse in life is do all things decently and in order, right? And, and they want everything calm and controlled and decent and in order, right? Well, then they invited in the journey, and the journey um, was predominantly white, a little bit more diversity, definitely younger, right? The crowd was younger. The music was louder. Um, the, 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 the culture uh, was a, a bit more edgy, uh, a bit more abrasive than, than Hanley Road. And, uh, and, and, and we came in. Um, and then there was a third church that met in that building, and it was a Haitian church. It was predominantly black. And, and, and it was loud, and it was raucous, and it was, it was fun. I would go down there and worship with them, and, and worship would last like three hours, right? Not like a 40, no, three hours. And there was, a, there was music, and there was, there was laughter, and there was movement, and there was bouncing. I mean, so much bouncing. Everybody's bouncing, right, for three hours, right? I'd get down there, and I'd be like 45 minutes in. I'm like, I'm exhausted, Right? All right, think about what would happen if you took those three churches and you put them all together and said, go do church together. How's that going to work? There's a reason there were three different churches meeting at Hanley Road Baptist Church because there were three different cultures. And we actually saw it. We were all believers in Jesus. We all supported each other. We would attend each other's services. But we saw it as important and, in fact, necessary that we were separate because we would actually reach three different people groups right? We, we, there were three different cultures, and, and those cultures appealed to different people in our, in our culture. And, and we were effective, more effective in some ways, um, allowing each culture to just be unique, right? And, and, and that's why it's really, you know, we can get into this, but it's really important, I believe, to have a diverse church. But the diversity is, is usually more racial, or age than it is culture. It's really hard to have a diverse cultural church because there's usually a single, single culture that dominates the gathering, right? It's really hard. How would, you, how would you have a cultural expression that met the need both for the edginess of the young people and, and the need for quiet and, and, and solemn times for the old people and, and the, the raucous, loud, expressive worship of, of the Haitians, right? I mean, it's, how would you ever meld that, right? Here's the thing. In the early church... <laughs> There was only one church. There weren't different tribes. There weren't different expressions. It was one church. And so when all the Gentiles start coming into the church, it challenges all the norms that have already been set. All the things that the people already in the church just thought would never be questioned and never be changed. The Jewishness of the church, the, the, the Jewishness of the worship, the nature and culture of the expression was now being challenged because you had all of these people coming in from pagan backgrounds. They had different ideas of worship, different ideas of how to express themselves, different ideas of how people should relate to each other, different ideas about how long it should last, different ideas about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat, what you could wear and you couldn't wear, what you could say and you couldn't say. And that created tension. Because as things change and as people's culture is challenged, the natural inclination of the heart is to become afraid. 
And in becoming afraid, you go in either protect mode or attack mode. Because when the things you love get challenged, it's really easy to start moralizing your preferences. You know what I'm talking about? Right? So, so pretty soon you got the, the quiet, reserved worship people are like, well, true worship is filled with awe. Right? So you just need to sit quietly, decently and in order. Because that's when you sense the deep movement of the Spirit. And the loud worship people are like, no way, man. God inhabits the praise of His people. Right? God loves, praise God with the symbols. I mean, it's in the Bible, right? Use the symbols, use the harp, dance. David danced before the Lord, right? So each one of them starts moralizing and like feeling superior to the other. And it creates conflict because we fear the threat that the other brings to what we value. That happened in the early church. And there were flashpoints of conflict. As the Gentiles came in, like the mealtime, sharing the meal was so important to the early church. They called it the love feast. And yet when they sat down to eat, their ideas of what was acceptable and not acceptable to eat were were drastically different. You had some people sitting down with meat that was sacrificed to idols because they got it from the meat market. It was the only place you could get meat unless you raised it yourself. You had other people that were sitting there like, I would never eat meat sacrificed to idols. I wouldn't even be at the same table with meat sacrificed to the idols because it's demonic. And they're all coming together for a single meal. How'd that go, right? It creates conflict, which engenders fear. What's amazing about Barnabas is that Barnabas moved in, and the first thing it says is he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. His heart response wasn't fear. His heart response was joy. Barnabas wasn't afraid of the changes because he saw what they brought, not what they cost. For the church to grow, for the mission of God to move forward, he knew that Jerusalem needed to diminish. He knew that the the history and the culture and the influence of Judaism had to decrease so that the church could grow. And that was going to cost but he wasn't afraid of the changes because he saw the potential and the blessing, not the loss. He didn't focus on the diminishment. Now, here's the thing, you guys. No one knew it at this time. Barnabas didn't know it. The prophets weren't saying it. But 25 years from this story, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. It's going to be razed to the ground. If the center of the church didn't move, the church could have been destroyed. God was preemptively protecting his mission by shifting the center of the church from Jerusalem to Antioch, from a predominantly Jewish identity to a predominantly Gentile identity. He was calling his people to die. Not literally, but to die to their preferences, to die to their comfort, to die to their ideas of what worship was supposed to look like, of what the church was supposed to be, of what made them comfortable and made them important. He called them to a diminishing. Grace freed Barnabas so that he could be at the cutting edge of that movement. Freedom from fear of change so that he could could let pass what needed to pass so he could embrace what needed to come. So it freed him from the fear of change. It also freed him from the fear of people. Because Barnabas was driven by a generous desire to encourage and to share grace, It allowed him to see potential in people instead of threats. When Barnabas saw the need in Antioch, um, his first thought was not, how do I contain this? It was, how do I grow this? He was the kind of guy that saw the potential instead of the limitations. He wasn't the kind of guy that was constantly looking for how to criticize He wasn't looking to be the critic, right? We are a culture of critics. You know why? Because we're a culture of consumers. We're a consumeristic culture. And what do consumers do? They consume and then critique. That's what they do, right? We've got whole websites that are devoted to the critiques of consumers so that other consumers could know whether or not it's worthy of consumption, right? Yelp. Who doesn't use Yelp? It's great, right? It's horrible when you start applying it to spiritual principles, though. This idea that, that, that it's my job to simply consume and critique, Barnabas wasn't a critic. He was an encourager. 
He didn't mark his identity for how many holes he could find, how he, how he could tear people down, how witty he could be in 160 characters, right, in, in, in making fun of somebody so that he could get a bunch of retweets. Barnabas wasn't about tearing people down. He was about seeing potential and building people up. So when Barnabas saw the need in Antioch, he thought of somebody nobody else was thinking of. He thought of Saul. Saul had been in Tarsus for about eight years at this point, and people were afraid of him. He had been sidelined. And Barnabas saw what the Spirit was doing in Antioch, and he thought, man, I see potential in Saul, and I think his potential matches this opportunity perfectly. Saul had a boldness and a wiring that made him perfect for this mission. Moving into the unknown, fighting to move into the, creating a new culture and a new atmosphere that, that hadn't even been experienced in the church yet. He's like, Saul, man, he's the guy. So he went and found him. We don't know what he said to him. That's not recorded, right? We don't know what, what, what Barnabas said to Saul when he found him. But you can guess, Barnabas cast vision for opportunity. Barnabas called out in Saul what was strong for the mission. In other words, he, he reminded Saul of who he was in Christ. He reminded Saul of how that wiring was beautiful and actually uh, perfectly matched needs in the mission. And so he goes and he envisions Saul and he, and he casts vision. And for the first time in, in what, eight, nine, ten years, Saul says, okay. He gets up, he follows him, right? He, the envi- he's envisioned, he is lit up to the opportunity And then Saul envisions the church to working with, or excuse me, Barnabas envisions the church to working with Saul. He speaks words of an encouragement and vision and grace. And as a result, he becomes an advocate, not a critic, an advocate. He advocates for people. He sees the best in them and he advocates uh, uh, for the best, right? So when he's talking to them, he becomes an advocate for God's grace calling out the best in them, calling out their strength, calling out their nobility, calling out, calling out everything Christ has placed in them. And then in speaking to others, he becomes their advocate in grace. He is, as, P- as Paul will later write, a minister of reconciliation. It is his identity. He is one who reconciles, who advocates, who, who calls people together and calls out the best and encourages people in the mission. So he helped Saul embrace the mission, and he helped the mission, the church, embrace Saul. So he was freed from fear of change, he was freed from fear of people, and he was freed from fear of loss. At the end of our passage, a prophet came and, and said, man, there's a famine coming, and, and, and it's going to be over the whole earth. Right? So God gave them a gift. When, when a prophet speaks and, and foretells the future, it's a gift to, to the people who receive it. The question is, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> right? So God gave you a gift and gave you a forewarning. Hey, man, the market's going to crash in three months. Or, or hey, man, there's going to be a, a, a fire and you're gonna, you're, you know, thousands of people are going to lose their jobs. Or What would you do with that information? Your first impulse is probably going to be to use the information to protect yourself to provide for yourself, right? Your first thought is, oh man, God gave me this information for me, (laughs) right? Why wouldn't he? Because I'm pretty interested in me, so God must be too, right? That's not Barnabas's first thought. The first thought is, how do we see this not as a threat to protect ourselves against, but an opportunity to maximize the mission of God's love? Barnabas, again, when you read the text, it's not exactly clear what Barnabas said or what role he played, but we do know that Barnabas is the leader in the church at this point. He's the point person. He's the one leading the charge in in the Antioch church. And so we can only guess, and, and I think safely, that as the church took this information that there was a famine coming and then decided what they were going to do is build a nest egg, not for themselves, but as a gift to the poor believers in Jerusalem, because they were going to be harder hit, they were going to be more vulnerable, that, that Barnabas was critical in that decision-making, that he was critical in casting the vision that said, man, God's given us in, this information not to protect ourselves, but so that we can act in love for them. We can, we can build this nest egg. We can send it to the believers in Jerusalem. 
He was not afraid of loss. He wasn't driven by self-protection. He was driven by this mission of love, and he saw not the threat, but the opportunity that the, opportun- that the, uh, that the changing scenario um, gave him. Now, interesting enough, I think Barnabas may have been acting even on a higher level. As Barnabas looked at how this was playing out, he had spent the last year in Antioch. He had seen all the Gentiles coming to Christ. He, he was part of what was, what was happening. I think he knew that it was going to be challenging for the Jewish believers to basically give up their heritage, to give up their rights and their privilege, to give up their power, their positions of influence, and allow the Gentile church to flourish. And so by leading the Gentile church to give them a gift, he's helping soften their heart for the change. He's still advocating. He's still thinking about how to be a blessing. So as he leads the Gentile church to serve and love the Jewish church in Jerusalem, he's acting to preserve the unity of the church and to continue to be um, one who protects and propels the mission. All right, so how can we, as we kind of think about application, how do we become more like Barnabas? What does it mean for us to become sons and daughters of encouragement, right? Barnabas was the son of encouragement. We see that embodied in this. How, how can we become more like that? How can we be freed from fear the same way Barnabas was? Well, I think it's really by imitating, right? So verse 24, we have a great description of Barnabas. In verse 24, right after it says that, that he saw the grace of God and he was made glad, in verse 24, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. All right, so I want to be clear. <laughs> he's not full of the Holy Spirit because he's a good man. He's a good man because he's full of the Holy Spirit, right? It wasn't that God looked down and said, oh, look, Barnabas is a really nice guy. Let's give him the Spirit, right? That, that's not the way it worked. Barnabas believed in Jesus, and when he believed in Jesus, he was filled with the Spirit, and having been filled with the Spirit, it made him into a good man. He was so deeply undone by grace. He was so impressed with God. <laughs> he was like so amazed with the love of God that it freed him to a beautiful expression of love to others. So when it talks about him being full of the Holy Spirit, this is not some weird, mysterious, mystical. It's him being like just overwhelmed by the love of God, so much so that he just wants more. And as he is loved, he loves. And as he receives grace, he moves out in generosity. He's a good man because he's filled with the Spirit. He drank deeply from grace and allowed it to soften his heart into generosity. He drank deeply from the security he had in Christ, right? Jesus died for him and rose again for him. It gave him a new identity, a new record. He was no longer defined by what he had done or what had been done to him. He was defined by what had been done for him in Jesus. And he drank deeply of that security, And as he did, it freed his heart to courage. It freed his heart to to stop fighting to protect himself, to stop fighting to protect his influence, to stop fighting to protect his position and prestige. He was freed in the security of Christ to the courage of taking the lowest place, the courage of letting other people, other cultures, other uh, traditions take precedent over his own. It gave him the courage to be made uncomfortable so that others might be made comfortable, right? He drank deeply from the encouragement he had in Christ that that he was now a son of God, loved by God, declared right by God. He drank deeply of that encouragement so that that encouragement would then flow out of him into the lives of others. You guys, it's no secret that we live in a time of fear and change and loss right? Politically and socially. Our culture is shifting, right? I don't need to spell that out. You know. Our culture is shifting. And as the culture shifts, we're threatened. Our position of influence, our position of, of power, like, like we're seeing a diminishing taking place. Our voice is less and less heard and less and less respected, politically, socially. We have less and less control 
And as a result, one of the knee-jerk reactions is to, fear more, to, to experience more and more fear, right? But as we experience the diminishing politically and socially, as we find our positions of affluence reduced, our, our cultural positions of, of power and influence reduced, how are we going to respond? Spiritually, we've seen a shift, right? When we talk about the shifting of the center of the church, the West used to be at the forefront of, of the movement, right? In the Spirit of God, the church exploded and flourished in the West. And what we're seeing now is Europe's already moved into a post-Christian culture. We're following. But that doesn't mean the church is diminishing. It's shifting. South America, in fact, right now in the Middle East, the church is, is exploding in the Muslim world. We're seeing radical and profound movement of the Spirit in these places that, that are so foreign and different from us. But, but the Spirit is there and the church is growing and it looks different. It's, they believe in the same Jesus. They believe in the same message. But socially and culturally, it's taking a different um, manifestation. So here's the thing. As a church, are we going to hold on to the past? Or are we going to embrace the future? In this diminishing, are we going to dig in our heels and say, no, I'm not going to give up my power. No, I am not going to release my, my influence. No, I am not going to allow myself to take the lowest place. I will demand what I had, or at least what I perceive I had at some previous time. Or are we going to embrace what's coming instead of trying to hold on to what's already passing? Are we going to get excited about what God is currently doing and where God is currently moving. Are we going to fear people who are different from us or embrace them and love them? Are we going to become critics of people we find uncomfortable or difficult or are we going to become advocates, calling out our best and theirs? Are we going to see unbelievers as enemies or are we going to see them as the harvest field of God's mission of love? Are we going to try to bunker down and self-protect, fearful of losing our political and social positions and power? Or are we going to ask, not what can I keep, but God, what are you calling me to give up? God, where are you calling me to yield I believe the church is moving into a season in the West where there's going to be unique and historically unprecedented opportunities for the gospel. The gospel is always most powerful when it's spoken from the margins. Right? That's the central message of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus went outside of the camp. <laughs> he went out, his message was outside of the camp. He was crucified outside of the camp, which means that he went outside of the power structures. He spoke from the margins. He was in the margins, and, and the gospel had its power not by infusing the political and social power structures of his day, but by speaking grace from the outside and calling people to, to something radically different than power or prestige or comfort, but calling them to grace. Not to win but to rest in how God has already won in Christ. You guys, we should, of all people, be people marked by and speaking grace. When we look back, what do we see? You know what we see? We see an empty tomb. We see Christ crucified and risen again. We see our guilt removed. We see our sin atoned for. We see our record expunged and we see a new record given to us. In the empty tomb, we see not only the death of our sin, but the resurrection of our future. We look back and we see that we can be justified, declared right before God because Jesus was our substitute, died in our place and rose again so we can be forgiven. When we look forward, you know what we see? We see the glorious kingdom of God. The same Jesus who came will come again, and he will establish his kingdom on the earth. 
We live in the already not yet tension of that kingdom. It's already here in the people of God, although it's not fully realized yet because Christ hasn't returned. When he does, his kingdom will be gloriously established on the face of the earth. That's our future. What are we afraid of? Why are we so determined to fight to hold on to the sand that is leaking between our fingers? Let go of the power, the prestige, the influence. Take the humble and low pace. Let's take up our cross and march victoriously to the kingdom. Let's be a people of grace. People who point to Jesus, who celebrate the grace of God by moving in the generosity of that grace to love others. Let's call people to something higher than political reform and social change. Let's call them to the grace of God to not just change their behavior, but to see their hearts transformed. Let's be a people marked by grace. We've been freed by that grace. We have a glorious future in that grace. Let's be ambassadors of that grace with hearts content in the blessing of God, with minds made clear by that message of grace and hands freed to love. You guys are going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen um, and just have you pray. Let God speak to your heart in whatever way. He wants. We're going to share communion. Um, but first, I want to create this space where we can just respond to God. Uh, I do want to remind you, if you're a guest with us, there's a worship response card in our bulletin. Um, I would love if you would fill that out. Let us know you were here. Uh, let us know how you found out about us. Um, if you have prayer requests, put those on there. We, we pray over those every week. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Uh, there are response boxes up front uh, and also by the door. And so just drop it in there. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace. That you love us not because we deserve to be loved or because we're lovable. You love us <laughs> because you choose to, because you created us in your image and you refuse to allow your image to go to ruin. And because you love us, you make us beautiful. You change us, you transform us, you free us. Lord, allow us to be a people, man. We want to be a people of grace, a people marked by radical generosity, a people that are, that are completely countercultural, that aren't about self-preservation, self-protection. Man, I want to be people of love. Lord, break our hearts in beautiful ways so that your grace can just leak out of us in generosity. Spirit, it's your work. It's your church. We commit it to you, knowing that what we're asking is the transformation of our own hearts. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.